days is all you have to worry about when it comes to me talking about that expiring coupon code link down below don't worry my birthday's tomorrow and that coupon code expires monday check that out for the programs i'm building your wealth link down below but for today we must start with catalysts so uh in about an hour uh, we will be getting the uh, pce numbers uh, so in this stream we'll be talking about the personal consumption expenditure numbers these are the fed's preferred gauge for inflation. We are expecting PCE deflator month over month to come in at zero. Obviously, if we get a negative read, that would be fantastic. The prior release was 0.1. Year over year, we're expecting a drop from the prior release of 5.5 to 5%. We're looking at core going from 0.2 to 0.3. That's actually ticking up slightly. We don't really like that, but then again, 0.3 annualized is 3.6, and it ain't that bad. Uh, then we've got 4.7 for the prior year over year release. Now at 4.4 is the expectation. Again, this report comes out in about 50 minutes' time. We'll also be getting University of Michigan sentiment and expectations reads. Uh, One year expectations for inflation expected to hold steady at 4%. Now, this is obviously uh, going to probably leave pre-market a little bit tentative. Usually when we get uh, PCE numbers, uh, markets are a little tentative in the morning before. Uh, and then every bit of trading after matter or, or is dependent on essentially the result of that PCE. You get a hot inflation report, bad. You get a soft inflation report, good. Simple. Good news is when it comes to the inflation reports, it's usually pretty binary like that. See, when we got retail sales reports, it was not as binary. When we got retail sales uh, numbers uh, for last month, and then they were down miserably, we're like, yay, it's bad. That's good for inflation. And then we're like, oh, wow, but it's really bad. That's bad for going into a recession. That was sort of the non-binariness of the last retail sales report number that we got, which was a little more... Um, uh, heart pounding uh, as, a, as a result uh, for the stock market. Whereas with inflation, th there is at this point no level of too low. The lower, the better. The faster it falls, the better. The last CPI report was fantastic. Let's hope the PCE report holds up as well. Not as many earnings today. We'll get a little bit of insight from American Express, Chevron, Colgate, uh, and uh, well, after all, it is Friday, and you tend to get less earnings that come out on uh, Fridays. We do on the 30th, we'll, uh, we will be getting the Dallas Fed Manufacturing Report. That's on Monday. On the 31st, we'll be getting the Employment Cost Index. Expecting employment costs for the fourth quarter to have risen 1.2%. Annualized, that would work out to 4.8%. Uh, so obviously, if we can miss on the employment costs, that would be great. Especially since we go into the Fed meeting already next week. How wild is that? Next week, Wednesday, we'll get to cover JPO uh, doing another press conference. That's just in five days away. Yeah, so not too bad. Now, we do have quite a few things to cover today. Uh, we'll go ahead and start just by looking briefly here at some of the uh, earnings numbers that we got. Uh, we'll start just with a brief summary here of uh, MasterCard. And I'm not the biggest fan of just yapping the actual uh, numbers out to you. I find that relatively boring. I try to look for the takeaways. Uh, and some of the takeaways uh, that I've noticed are that both of them missed expectations. Uh, purchase volumes at both, uh, well, when I say both of them, I should also mention the other company, it's Visa. Uh, both companies, Visa 
Visa and MasterCard missed purchase volumes. Uh, although both of them did rise, Visa saw purchase card spend up 1.7%, MasterCard up 11%. Both of those were misses though. And they still expect to grow revenue, but when you adjust for inflation, Visa was substantially negative. MasterCard was actually still slightly positive, leading MasterCard to say that spending is still positive and healthy, but things are definitely growing slower than expected, which honestly isn't that bad of a sign given that we want, we kind of want a little bit of that balance where again, things are weakening so that the Fed can relax, but not weakening so terribly that we think we are going into the depths of a 2008 financial crisis again. That we definitely don't want. Although I honestly don't think many companies or individuals are planning for a 2008 style financial crisis. And personally, they shouldn't. Uh, in my opinion. I mean, I, I suppose it's good to have sort of your backup for a worst case scenario, your money for a rainy day, but it seems like most of the company earning call, earnings calls that I'm uh, researching uh, indicate that companies actually see this as, look, either we're not going to have a recession, we'll be fine, or we're going to have a shallow recession, and the best thing we could do right now is invest in ourselves. And if we invest in ourselves, then we'll be a better version of ourselves outside the other or at the other end of this recession or no recession. Uh, so uh, I, I think this applies individualistically as well. It's something that I've been encouraging for the last years. Hey, you know what, as an individual, obviously you could cut back on some of your spending, cut back on margin, cut back on debt, cut, pay down your credit cards, maximize your ability to, to borrow on like a home equity line of credit when the time is right to go by uh, for say real estate or, or whatever and, uh, and, and and prepare because usually recessions are great times to invest in yourself. So that works for both individuals and businesses. The goal obviously is not to go bankrupt. See, that doesn't work so well if you're a money losing company like Rivian or Lucid, uh, then it becomes very, very difficult to invest in a recession because you have no money. And guess what the one thing is we generally don't have in a recession? Liquidity. That's the first thing that goes out of the window, liquidity. The ability to raise money, the ability to get new financing, new debt, generally goes out the window. Now, uh, Synchrony did come out and uh, indicate that there were some increasing net charge-offs. Charge basically, um, they're, they're pre-planning for more expected defaults on their cards. Synchrony Bank is uh, one of the uh, issuers, although I think JP Morgan took over. They used to be one of the issuers for the Amazon credit card, uh, along with many others. Uh, they do uh, tend to serve a more low-tier credit customer. Uh, and uh, they mention uh, that we should not worry because delinquencies are still a, below a pre-pandemic level. Uh, however, they don't expect delinquencies to normalize until 2024. 25% of Synchrony's borrowers have a credit score of under 650. Uh, even lower credit score borrowers right now, though, are paying back more frequently than they did before the pandemic. It's pretty remarkable. Hasbro, the uh, toy and board game company, uh, is cutting 1,000 jobs after a pretty rough miss on numbers. Jeffries called it uh, a very painful period for Hasbro. Sherwood-Williams also sees a materially softer housing market, as well as Dow Chemicals, which uh, obviously is affected by the housing market as well. I actually think this is a very interesting opportunity to potentially start positioning yourself for taking advantage of uh, housing-related stocks, residential investments are plummeting. We expect that construction spending will fall uh, substantially as we get into this recession and the backlog of existing construction projects is cleared out. 
in such a way that uh, I wouldn't be surprised that during a recessionary environment here in 2023, and I've been I've been looking for this coming for almost a year now, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if you have better opportunities to buy solar or green energy related companies for residential uh, investments here in 2023. We'll see, but I, I would not have high hopes for uh, solar related plays in 2023. However, I would have high hopes at being able to pick them up pretty inexpensively because I do believe that for the rest of the decade, solar is going to be pretty darn desirable. Next to potentially, of course, and this is an interesting one, offshore turbines. Yeah, post-2025, there are 86 gigawatts of, uh, of offshore wind turbine projects that have a yet to select a manufacturer. Big plays in the offshore wind turbine market are Siemens, Gamesa, Vestas, and GE, uh, each uh, looking to uh, capitalize on somewhere between 27, 14, and 11 gigawatts, respectively, of power generation. I always think that's really interesting because... Uh, wind turbines, uh, especially offshore, well, wind turbines are really popular uh, in, in uh, certain uh, more rural parts of the world, certainly even countries like uh, Germany, you see a lot of wind farms, pretty darn uh, uh, popular. And what you'll actually see is a lot of farmers, they'll themselves invest in, in uh, wind farms because once they make the investment, uh, along with the government tax credits, they can break even on the investment and produce cash flow off them pretty darn quickly. But uh, uh, yeah, wind farms are big and long projects that take about three years before they actually uh, act, uh, you know, go from paying a manufacturer a down payment for a turbine to actually getting it. And so that's why a lot of folks are now looking at the post-2025 period of unallocated wind turbine investments and see it as potentially uh, big investments for companies like, uh, again, Siemens, uh, Vesta, and, Vestas, and uh, GE. Kind of wild. Uh, annual offshore wind build outside China will exceed 10 gigawatts for the first time ever per year in 2026. Fascinating. I, I, I don't know if I'm going to be buying a wind turbine anytime soon. I think I need to start with a backyard before I could have a wind turbine. Still don't have a backyard, but uh, who needs backyards? Just maintenance, right? The kids can play in the street. Mm. That doesn't sound so great. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, then we've got uh, Google, uh, and Google's uh, uh, an interesting, uh, it was an interesting piece about how uh, cookie removal, the, the removal of cookie uh, tracking software, uh, and sort of the Apple uh, tracking transparency update uh, from almost two years ago now, is still hurting Google. Uh, now, what's fascinating here is you've got a company that released an open source uh, product called UID2. Uh, they use that instead of cookies, and guess what? It's Trade Desk. Trade Desk is still expected to see substantial growth in the connected TV industry. Keep in mind, though, connected TV is just a $14 billion industry relative to the $500 billion digital advertising market. So if the total addressable market for digital advertising is $500 bill, you take 10% of that, you're at $50 bill. 10% of the entire digital advertising market is still over three times what the connected TV advertising market is now. So it has a lot of people at least uh, sharing some hopium about digital connected TV. But remember, hope is not an investing strategy. <laughs> All right, let's take a listen in over here for a moment. Let's see what they're yapping about on CNBC. Um, 
the Chinese are going to know where people are or going to know uh, details about them. Is that, is that what people worry about? Is that what you worry about? Is it the power and influence that the uh, platform could be used for in the future, which is to say to try to influence politics? Is it the, mono- I don't know if it's a monopoly, but the, just the scale and scope of it insofar as, you know, I've had people say, look, uh, if, you know, we would never let a foreign, uh, 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 a foreign country, if not foreign adversary, own every local TV station in America. And maybe that's what uh, TikTok is, especially for a new generation. Which is it to you? Look, these are all, they're all serious problems and challenges. But uh, for me, Andrew, you really have to ask, um, again, I go back to where does this go? Are, are we going to ban any Chinese company? I, I'm much more worried about, frankly, Facebook than I am about TikTok today and the information Facebook has, how it was used to hack one of our elections. So uh, I, I'm a lot more worried about all these social networks, which I think are hugely problematic in terms of privacy issues. I, I, I don't use TikTok. I wouldn't want it on my phone, personally. Um, at the same because time, Because why? Because you think that there are folks who would actually would hack your phone itself? Yeah, or because I don't trust... I don't trust any of I don't. By the way, I, I don't use Facebook either. OK, um, I think we're going to wake up one day 10 years from now and realize how destructive all of these social media have been for truth and trust in this country. But that's another matter. I'm talking about the. Oh, man, I'm sorry. This guy's a little too exhausting for me. Let's uh, instead talk about something that could be a lot more. Uh, oh, dare I say entertaining. Yes, like fundamentals. <laughs> We've got to talk about a. Uh, Chat GBT style, uh, GPT style play, maybe, maybe potentially. The chips market is going to come under pressure, especially after uh, Intel's miss. Uh, however, there is one particular company that seems to be standing out. Uh, it still expects over 25% growth over the next year and is a company that has a backlog exceeding 18 months of production. Uh, Some say their backlog is over two years of production. It's a company that sells very expensive machinery that makes chips. It's actually a Dutch company with 35,000 employees that people say no one can copy. And that company is ASML. They use uh, a technology that uh, they patented and came up with, uh, in part, or at least with their technology, to uh, called lithography to produce silicon wafers, and they provide some of the machinery to companies like Taiwan Semiconductors and Intel to actually produce advanced microchips like the uh, five nanometer chips that uh, TSMC is now expected to build at a plant in Arizona uh, as they expand under the CHIPS Act in the United States. Now, without ASML, you would lose about 90% of the chip market. Now, that's actually really fascinating because a lot of folks, well, I should I should say the advanced chip market, uh, a lot of folks are really excited about the potential for ChatGPT to take over, uh, uh, you know, in terms of artificial intelligence and, and uh, expand uh, substantial use cases for artificial intelligence very rapidly. And so people are going down the rabbit hole of, okay, well, if I want to invest in ChatGPT, then maybe I want to invest in Microsoft. But the problem is a $10 billion stake in Microsoft represents only a half percent 
investment in really open AI if you, uh, if, if you look at uh, ChatGPT as a percentage of Microsoft's market cap. In English, if you put $100 into Microsoft stock, maybe you're only getting exposure to ChatGPT to the tune of half of one cent. Not that great. So that's leading a lot of people to say, okay, well, ChatGPT uses Microsoft Azure uh, at a cost of about seven cents per query. Uh, and so why not invest in Microsoft, right? But wait a minute, Azure is primarily driven by NVIDIA and AMD chips, mostly NVIDIA. So NVIDIA and AMD are graphic card designers and Taiwan Semiconductors manufactures a lot of those advanced microprocessors especially the artificial intelligence ones, given that uh, Taiwan Semiconductor has a 92% share of the advanced chip market. But then we go just one derivative further and where do we end up? ASML, which has 90% of the advanced lithography market to actually uh, provide machines that Taiwan Semiconductors can use to make the advanced chips. So as you're kind of going down the supply chain, I mean, soon we're going to be looking at sand and where we can source silicon for these wafers. But, but for now, ASML is a little bit of, of, of a shocker in terms of how much market share they have. Some call it Europe's most valuable tech company. They produce these machines uh, called extreme ultraviolet machines. Uh, that's one of their most uh, advanced machines. They also produce less advanced machines. The more advanced machines cannot be sold to China anymore because they're so critically important for uh, making chips. Uh, and so the more research we do into ASML, the more we're like, Oh my gosh, there's very little competition for them. Again, they've got about 90% of this lithography market. Uh, and, uh, and, and they basically, uh, these uh, ultraviolet machines uh, allow the engraving of these uh, tiny transistors that are, uh, again, four or five nanometers wide. Uh, and they do so with these ultraviolet, essentially, lasers. Uh, and uh, they've, got, they've got the machinery, uh, which is incredible because they also just uh, released earnings. Uh, and what's great is we could take a peek a little bit at their earnings call and a look at some of their numbers. And I'll tell you, they're incredible. So here's some of their numbers. We've got uh, a company here that's manufacturing machines. And the machines they're selling have a 51.5% gross margin, which is really incredible because if you think about Tesla again, they sell $100 worth of machines, aka cars, they're taking maybe 20 to $25 of that to uh, their, their operating, uh, uh, operating expenses. Here, you've got a company that's bringing more than 50 cents of every dollar to their OPEX. Now, that's expected to slow down from about a gross margin of 51.5% to maybe uh, closer to 49%, but still really, really phenomenal. Uh, again, it's a European company, so when we see numbers, we're going to see a lot of guidance and numbers in, uh, in, in, in euros here. But uh, uh, R&D uh, coming in at, at, as they're uh, higher, as they're expecting uh, to continue to hire individuals. Uh, and uh, SG&A expenses up as they just continue to grow uh, their sales and, and uh, admin expenses because this company's got a massive backlog. These machines that they sell, sell for anywhere between 100 to $200 million, some even more expensive. Uh, and uh, they, they, so they can, in a quarter, deliver somewhere around 
uh, you know, 50, oh, I'm sorry, in, in a year. In 2022 of the UV advanced machines, they shipped just 54 of the machines. I mean, these machines are just as valuable as planes. Boeing's average price per plane is somewhere around $80 million. ASML is, is selling some products that are twice as expensive as the average plane that Boeing makes. So these are very, very expensive uh, pieces of equipment. Uh, and they're really critical uh, in terms of uh, what, what the future of the chip industry uh, could look like. Uh, and, and they're uh, critical to uh, cr critical suppliers to companies like Taiwan Semiconductors, which is now a Warren Buffett-backed uh, stock. Now, what I thought was so wild was that despite all of the uncertainty around inflation, macro, recession, interest rates, uh, there's, uh, and despite the fact that they're seeing customers provide evidence of demand weakness, they're still buying the machines to make chips. And what they're simply doing is you've got companies like Taiwan Semiconductors simply operating the lithography machines at lower utilization levels. Uh, and, and so this is where uh, a lot of folks say, well, wait a minute. And, and this was my thesis initially first. Wouldn't the machine company, a company like ASML suffer in an environment uh, like a recession where maybe Taiwan Semiconductors is cutting back on some of their capital expenditures, which they are, just slightly below 10% cut back from last year on CapEx. And uh, ASML actually touches on that a little bit. They say they see to help rebalance inventory levels, customers are running lithography systems at a lower utilization level, somewhat a lower, uh, uh, and, and somewhat also lowered, so they also lowered some of their CapEx plans. But they have concluded that customers have made the, assess the assessment that the duration of a potential recession is significantly shorter than our average delivery lead time. Uh, now, that's actually quite interesting because it suggests that lithography investments are strategic in nature, which means the demand for these systems remains strong. And basically, companies that would buy lithography machines from, uh, from ASML are saying, hey, wait a minute, if we buy an ASML machine right now, it's going to take us a couple years to get it. Do we actually think we're still going to be in a recession in a couple years? No. So we may as well continue to make investments and provide down payments now on machinery to make sure we're in the queue to get that machinery when we're out of a recession. This is very interesting because to me, it goes back to the rubber band thesis that I have for demand uh, and uh, supply chains. So the rubber band thesis is pretty simple. The rubber band thesis suggests that, hey, when we went into the pandemic, we had supply chains that kind of looked like this. And with all of the crazy stimulus spending that we had, the rubber band basically stretched to the extreme and in many cases snapped. That's not good. You don't want the rubber band to snap because that's how prices skyrocket because everybody then has pricing power uh, to the tune of raising nominal prices and people are paying whatever just to get their hands on things because they've got so much stimulus money. That led to the pretty insane inflation that we're seeing now. However, when ASML tells us, hey, you know, companies are actually just running machinery at a lower utilization level and they're still investing in the future, it implies to me that the rubber band of supply chains is, is actually kind of scrunching down and that as soon as we see a Chinese reopening and the exit of a recession for the United States, we could actually see that rubber band just kind of go back to normal. 
uh, in, in that we would just stretch from a scrunchy period to a normal period. And the ASML report really reiterates that that's kind of exactly what's going on. Uh, that companies aren't really looking at this recession, especially ones with high cash flow, that say, oh, uh, yeah, we're, um, we're going into a recession, so we're going to cut all our spending. No, they're, they're seeing this instead as an opportunity uh, to, to invest more in their businesses, just run some of their machinery at a slower level. This is what we're seeing with Intel as well, right? Intel, terrible numbers. Uh, Intel, way worse guidance than expected. Uh, PC market down over 33% from uh, their forecast. The demand for memory is plummeting. So you're looking at a lot of pain, at least in the near term, coming off of all of the spending we saw in 2020, 21, 22 in the upgrade cycle for chips. Uh, and now with a weakening crypto uh, mining uh, demand set as well, you're not seeing as much chip demand. This is obvious, right? We already knew that. This is why NVIDIA, AMD, Taiwan Semiconductor sold off terribly last year. Samsung also coming out with numbers that are terribly uh, or terribly low and miserable. Yet a lot of these stocks have actually risen off of their lows because we see that light at the end of the tunnel, that these companies are making insane investments to make sure they're positioned for what probably is going to be insane growth for the rest of the decade. Bloomberg Intelligence is going as far as calling the chip sector the next oil. In other words, as oil becomes less and less prominent over the next 50 years, it's going to be a while. Oil is going to be with us for a while, okay? It's just going to become less prominent over time. Chips are going to be going in completely the opposite direction. Think about how an average car has over a thousand chips, and these aren't all like you know, your motherboards. These could be little chips, like chips that held up Ford assembly lines because they didn't have wiper blade chips. Everything has a chip now. It's insane. I actually remember 10 years ago. Actually, it was more than 10 years ago at this point, but uh, I'll just call it about 10 years ago. It was about 11 years ago. Uh, we, I bought a new washing machine and uh, the stupid thing broke within a week. And I despise the idea of dealing with uh, warranty and sitting on the phone with people. So I disassembled the entire washing machine myself, uh, diagnosed the problem with my little Volti multimeter. It's a multimeter. I like to call it a Voltimeter. Uh, but anyway, uh, found a stupid 25 cent chip that I thought I suspected was the troublemaker or some pressure flow measure or whatever. Uh, and uh, I replaced this like 25 cent chip uh, that I had to wait a week for to get. And uh, uh, yeah, the shipping cost more than the chip was worth. As soon as I replaced that chip, washing machine worked for another 12 years. It was great. Uh, and, uh, and, and it really made me realize like, wow, how important chips are. Just one thing ruins and stops the entire process of being able to use a machine. I mean, this is why we went away from using vacuum tubes for computers or mechanical switches in computers because one little piece breaks, one little bug, so to speak, and uh, the entire system shuts down. So chips are I mean, really remarkably important. Uh, ASML here in their report talking about how uh, demand continues to exceed supply. I mean, this is like the Tesla of chip makers here. Memory buyers are making strategic investments because they've recognized that at a certain point in time, the market is going to come back and they are going to need capacity. Uh, you do have a 1.5% drag on gross margin coming from inflation. I would say most of that we expect to recover during this year. This actually reiterates what we're seeing with the inflation story for a lot of companies. 
a lot of companies talking about uh, how they're expecting inflation to really go away over the next uh, uh, probably probably closer to the second half of the year. Average selling prices of these machines they're selling, sitting at somewhere of the advanced machines at least, uh, the, the EUVs, sitting at around 165 to 170 million euros per machine. Again, about twice the cost of a Boeing, uh, the average Boeing jet. Uh, customers, again, seeing some kind of feeling that we might see a chip recovery in the second half of the year. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, ultimately, uh, ASML is saying, look, we don't want to skimp on our investments in the first half because we think mid to long term, demand is just going to continue to significantly exceed our build capacity. Sometimes they say by the tune of 40 to 50 percent. Demand is still higher than what they can make. Anytime you have demand exceeding supply, uh, you're, you're in a situation of pricing power. Simple pricing power. Uh, let's see what, we, what else we have here. We've got uh, testing protocols, some chatting about trying to reduce uh, some of those cycles for testing and some of the initial setup for their customers. And uh, we have, let's see, anything else in the earnings call. This earnings call, by the way, from January 25th, so pretty dang new, just a couple days ago. And that was at night a couple days ago, so uh, because it's a European company. So, so this is really only about a day old. Pretty good here. Of course, we had significant hiring in the course of Q4. Those people we added this year, this is why we saw that SG&A increase in the research and development. We had an increase in wages, of course. But uh, what do we have here? As you would have seen, if you look at the 2025 and 2030 scenarios we've talked, uh, talked about, uh, you've uh, seen it that down a little. That's a, clearly the intention to get some operating leverage. So that's to say that by 2020, uh, well, the scenarios of 2025 to 2030, they see the percentage of SG&A and research down slightly relative to sales. That is normal because you want to see an expansion there. That actually is proof of expanding pricing power. If you can maintain margins uh, and actually expand margins by reducing your OPEX relative to your sales, that's good. They're also setting up to get even more complex in their research and development, especially as they're moving from what now is considered an advanced chip of five nanometers, maybe even four nanometers, down to new chips like this over here a product portfolio that's going to bring them down to two, the one and a half, and the one nanometer, and even beyond that. So in other words, smaller. So less than one nanometer chips for the rest of the decade, things that they're working on now. Now, remember, when you're talking nanometers, we're not talking about nanometer chips, I, I should clarify. The, the, the nanometer refers to the size of the transistor, which is kind of like a non-mechanical switch. So if you're weirded out by the idea of what a transistor is, think about it like a light switch, but instead of being mechanical, it's chemical. Science, chemistry, electromagnets. Uh, anyway, all right. So, uh, and non-physical ones at that, which is also kind of weird. But anyway, uh, okay, great level of confidence in demand, uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we kind of get the idea here. But, uh, and then of course we talk a little bit about how China doesn't get access to the fancy EVUVs. But keep in mind, you have to use DUVs to use EUVs. China can't get a hold of the EUVs. So what's China trying to do? Well, China is actually trying to steal R&D uh, and IP, intellectual property, from companies like ASML. So they're having to actually substantially increase their staff screening processes, their security processes, because they basically think China is just going to steal all their information 
and try to build EUVs themselves. That's pretty incredible. So you've got uh, some serious uh, potentially uh, national security concerns for uh, well countries within Europe and the United States trying to basically protect companies like ASML from letting their machinery, their $150 million machines and the technology around those to fall into the hands of Chinese. Uh, a lot of folks believe that China will ultimately uh, uh, triple down and, and manufacture their own uh, chip-making machines. Uh, some folks fearful about investing in Taiwan semiconductors for the risk of uh, Chinese invasion. Uh, we are seeing Taiwan also expand their manufacturing outside of Taiwan, though they're pretty confident that China won't invade. Uh, China's got enough economic problems uh, to deal with. But I'll tell you, in terms of chat GPT-style stocks that maybe other people aren't talking about, dang, ASML. I mean, we've put days of research into this. I, I know that doesn't sound like that impressive, but it's actually a lot uh, because it's it's been something we've been looking at pretty full-time over the last few days here. And uh, we're very, very impressed uh, with ASML. Uh, I know that sounds like ASMR and it's like, Kevin, why, why are you pitching us some random international stock? Uh, I'll be clear, I don't own a dime of it right now because I'm still in the research phase, but wow, uh, it is, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, what I will do is provide a little bit of fundy on it because the stock is, has exploded uh, you know, in, in recent years here uh, as well, we've gone through sort of a chip explosion. Uh, over the uh, COVID pandemic and that. So if we look at ASML, uh, again, it is a Dutch company. If we get a little bit of financial analysis uh, on this company, we can see uh, we've got about 18.47 euros expected of earnings per share by the end of 2023. In a course member live stream, by the way, we've gone through the fundamentals of the company as well from a perspective of the revenue statement, which is also known as the income statement, uh, the balance sheet, the cash flow statement. I do try my best to conduct fundamental analysis like that on a daily basis, whether it's stocks and real estate with y'all in the course member live stream where we do Q&A together. And obviously, I would love to have you uh, in the course member live stream. So check out those uh, links down below. The next coupon code does expire in three days. That's Monday the 30th. And uh, it's the guaranteed lowest price you can get probably all year, but at the bare minimum for three months. So we'd love to have you there. So uh, EPS in US dollars expected to be 20. $20 of uh, earnings per share expected for 2030. Looking at the uh, share price right now, sitting at 683 divided by 20 puts you at about a 34 times uh, multiple for this company. Company is expected to grow EPS between 34 to, 12, well, I'll just read it out. We got 34, 25, 26, 25, 9. Those are sort of your EPS growth rates. So if you went with an average EPS growth rate of about 25, 34 divided by 25, probably selling for about a 1.36 times peg. Not as juicy as some other plays in the, in the chip space, selling for substantially lower peg ratios, but uh, quite a bit less than Taiwan semiconductors right now. Uh, fascinating, really, really fascinating company and uh, quite, quite an exciting uh, argument for potential PP uh, and PP go up. We like it when PP goes up. No, there's nothing I like more than PP going up at companies. Pricing power is, in my opinion, the number one thing you want to pay attention to. After, of course, you make sure that these companies actually have positive cash flow. 
I do not believe that in a recessionary environment you want to be exposing yourself to um, companies that don't have PP uh, you, you, or, or cash flow. You want to stay away from cash flow cash or uh, a lack of cash flow. Money losing companies, bad, not good. Anyway, that's potentially another chat GPT stock for you. All right. Next up, we must talk about real estate. Let's take a moment to talk about real estate. We haven't talked about real estate in a hot minute. So let's spill some tea on real estate, shall we? Okay, the first thing we have to do is complain about Redfin. But I'll do that after I take a sip of coffee. And I want to look at some of your questions, actually, first. Mm-hmm. Gamer Dan, are you saying you have three courses? I love it, and I love you. Unless you're talking about a three-course meal, I'm not sure. Kevin, what would you consider a second wave of inflation? I'm assuming you do not expect a steady decline back to 2 to 3%. I don't really understand how this two... Wait, what do you... What would you consider a second wave? I'm assuming you do not expect a steady decline back to 2.2% Okay I'll answer that the best I can So a second wave of inflation uh, to me would be any kind of month-over-month -month reads that give us warnings that inflation on an annualized basis is uh, running amok again Running amok on month-over-month -month inflationary reads, in my opinion, would be anything with a uh, 0.4 uh, or greater on the month-over-month -month reads because that would show us at an annualized inflation rate of around 4.8%. Those would be red flags about a second wave of inflation. I do not actually believe that a second wave of inflation is possible. Uh, I, I, I uh, you know, think that ultimately uh, supply chains will, will keep, that, uh, keep a lid on inflation. But uh, I would actually expect this year a rapid uh, decline of inflation, potentially below uh, uh, 3% pretty dang quickly. Well, maybe by, by uh, July, August, September, we, we, we could honestly be negative because of the uh, housing sector dragging everything down uh, as a giant anchor representing about 32% of CPI, 25% of PCE. Where we end up leveling off in the future will be quite interesting. I don't really know. Obviously, if we level off uh, in, in sort of a, uh, an environment that's, that's sitting below, below 2%, it, it just gives the Fed the license to print money again and, and stop quantitative tightening quite quickly. But I don't know where, where we'll end up. That, that'll be the interesting thing. Are we going to go back in the path of the great moderation of negative interest rates? Maybe. Maybe. Alright, let's see here. How much more metal is in an EV versus an ICE vehicle? Ooh, yeah. Let's just let's just add up copper, shall we? Can we look at wave? Do you think of them as a viable energy source? What do you think of them as a long-term investment? I don't even know what that is, man. Wave? Wave? Like, I, when I type in wave, I literally just get wave power and, and like, hydro. Let me try wave stock. What is this? Eco wave power. Global ADR. What is ticker wave? Eco wave power. You're asking me about a penny stock. Uh, 
Um, changing the world one wave at a time. It's some hydro stock. It's some hydro penny stock is what you're asking about. Boy, the maintenance on that looks terrible. Think about the rust and, and oh, ugh. Um, IR. I'll oblige for a brief moment. Let's see what you got here. Report of foreign issuers. Oh my God. I don't care about some philanthropic uh, press release. I want earnings. I want financials. I'll just go to financial reports. Let's see. Let's see what's inside, shall we? Brief look. Let's see what this is. All right. So brief look. Revenue 242, what is this, mill of SEKs? I don't even know what that is. Sweet, Swedish money. Wow. One Swedish krona is 9.7 cents? Yeah, wow. Okay, so you're, you're pitching a penny stock that has revenue of about $24 million and operates a net loss of about $670,000 um, with margins of, what is that? Barely 20%? You don't wanna poop on that, it's not bad. Uh, but especially if you're manufacturing product. It's no ASML, but okay, 19.8%. And has this improved at all? No, their net loss has gotten worse. Their sales shrunk. That's not good. A company that's selling $20 million of product had their sales shrink from 21 to 22. Sounds scary. I don't know. I'd like to go back even further to prior years. Do they do they ever make money, right? I don't know. Let's find out. Let's look at their annual 2019 report. I don't think they're changing anything one wave at a time. I think they're they're losing more money one wave at a time. Okay, well, well what do we have here? Hold on a sec. Oh, they had no revenues in 2019. Fantastic. Uh, Q2. So they just, I mean, this is, this is a risky bet. You're looking at a penny stock that has no provable revenues. Here they had, at the beginning of 2020, they had 4 million bucks worth, basically. Wait, no, hold on. 10,000? Oh, what is this? No, this is, I'm sorry, this is way less. Because this is 440,000 krona, which is like $40,000 of revenue. I I don't know. I, I mean, this is like, you'd have to gamble on, on a penny stock like this. Or have some kind of like insider information that this was like the next big thing. Scary. If we were scrunchy right now and go to normal, wouldn't that imply a second wave of inflation? No. Fair, fair question. Okay, I will add some clarity. Hold, hold on a moment. Uh, 
So going back to the scrunchie example, the scrunchie example uh, it does not should not be confused with well if we're a scrunchie and we expand to here we end up in a situation where we have inflation again. The idea of the scrunchie is that actually companies that want to make product and sell product actually have so much spare capacity and such better supply chains and shipping methods that they would love to have more demand. And rather than actually raise prices because they can't meet all of the demand, they just increase their production output to meet more demand at the same level of profit and the same pricing levels. Think about it. Would you rather, and it's simple, would you rather sell 10 uh, PP widgets, I'm going to call them, and where you make $1 of profit each. In other words, you made $10. Would you rather sell 10 PP widgets or would you rather sell 100 uh, of the PP widgets? There we go. Uh, and make, you know, $100 of profit. Well, obviously you would rather sell 100 PP widgets. Now, if your supply was constrained at 75 and you were able to raise the price and maybe you were able to make, I don't know, a buck 20 of profit, so so 20% more profit. Uh, well, now all of a sudden you would uh, you'd be at 75 bucks times 1.2. Now you're at $90 of profit with a 20% price hike because your production is constrained. But the company would much rather not be production constrained and do more units because they would make more money in that example. So here's an example where a 20% price hike actually is not as desirable as just having properly lubricated supply chains. So the idea of, of the scrunchie is that companies are seeing through this recession and they realize that once we go back to a regular demand environment, companies never ever want to be in a situation again where they can't fulfill demand. There's nothing more frustrating than a company that can't that, that faces a lack of being able to fulfill demand. There's nothing more frustrating than that. You call up a ship, you're like, I got all this product. I got a customer who wants to buy it. Can you ship it for me? Sorry, got no capacity. You got to wait six months before we can get you a ship. That pisses companies off. So what do they do? Well, what did Walmart do? They bought their own freaking ships. And they're like, fine, we'll ship it ourselves because this is bullshit. <laughs> right? So, so... Companies want to provide goods and services to their customers. Because the other thing is, it's not just the loss of, of profit in a supply chain crisis, but it's also pissed off customers. There is no customer that wants to wait six months for a product. Nobody wants that. No one. There's no one who goes to Walmart and is happy when there are supply chain shortages and there's not enough deodorant on the shelves or tampons. Gotta have enough tampons, okay? Not having enough tampons is a bad day. Anyway. A little bit more on the scrunchie there for you. Okay. Well, before we talk about real estate, we have to prepare. Because PCE comes out in five minutes. And a PCE report is a big deal. Because it's the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. Mm -hmm. All right, folks. Get ready for it. Because we also get personal income. Personal income expected to be up 0.2%. Personal spending expected to be down 0.1%. PCE deflator month over month, zero. Year over year, five. You know, I'm going to put these on screen. 
so you want uh, estimates, purse income, 0.2%, uh, purse spend, negative, 0.1%, uh, PCE MOM, 0%, PCE year-over-year, 5%. All right, we'll see what happens. So we'll slap that up. We have four minutes to go until we get those PCE numbers. In the meantime, let's listen to what CNBC is talking about in regards to streaming. I, I don't want to be specific right. on, any, on any certain companies, but I think that uh, the, na the concept of national carriers uh, pending regulatory approvals in right. the U.S. or other countries uh, will happen. And I okay. think whether it's Latin America, Europe, or the U.S., uh, or even you know, eastward, I think there will be more telecom consolidation uh, to come. What's the la latest thing you watch that you really like? I actually, I watch a few things. I watch Fauda on Netflix. Yeah. With my friend There's Lee not Rose. a new one. That I don't care about this at all. In the future. The oh, and it's they're on an ad. human. Boring. This is why the mainstream media is killing me. As soon as I switch to them, it's ads. All right, I mean. I get it. It's not their fault. I mean, you come here and all you get is a coupon code pitch. I guess that's not as bad. Anyway, so Bolsonaro's wife returns to Brazil alone, ending the U.S. vacation. Bolsonaro apparently staying back in Florida. Amex predicts revenue surge after record cardholder spending. American Express said... Customer spending on its network climbed to a record last quarter, and the credit card giant predicted that revenue and earnings for this year will surge well above what some analysts have expected. Shares of the company rose more than 5%. While volume increased less than expected in the final quarter, revenue is expected to grow by 17% in 2023. I mean, if there's any credit card company that I've always liked, it's been Amex, but... Then again, I'm not too excited about financials in a recessionary environment. But hey, Amex is expected to increase their quarterly dividend to 60 cents now. Chevron falls on profit disappointment after huge share buyback. And Intel gives one of the grimmest forecasts ever. Americans fall... Ooh, now this is interesting. Americans are falling behind on car payments at a higher rate than in 2009. Individuals uh, and Americans facing car repossessions are an ominous sign for the U.S. economy. During the pandemic, a surge in used car prices forced buyers to take on bigger loans for vehicles. Now, more Americans are falling behind on their car payments during the than during the financial crisis. In December, the percentage of subprime auto borrowers who were at least 60, uh, 60 days late on their bills rose to 5.67% up from a seven-year low of 2.58% in April of 2021. That 5.67% compares to 5.04% in January 2009, the peak pain period of the Great Recession. Higher interest rates are making it even more difficult to make monthly payments. The average new auto loan was 8% in December, up from 5.15% a year ago. Although if you look at Tesla, they're, they're pitching this idea that you could get a 5.45% interest rate. Although that's probably with perfect credit. Anyway, thus is bad news. In the meantime, when we look at bad news, we will also now look at PCE numbers, which come out in about five seconds. 
who is ready for PCE numbers to make stocks go up or down. I am. All right, here we go. All right, and personal income matches, point two. Personal spending comes in worse than expected, negative point two versus the negative point one expected. PCE numbers, standing by for those, not out yet. Uh, but again, personal income, okay, PCE, month over month, ooh, comes in slightly hotter than expected. Point one on the month over month PCE deflator, the expectation was zero. Uh, year over year matches 5%. Real personal spending, negative 0.3%. And in terms of revisions, you have a slightly upward revision on the, oh, sorry. No, you have downward revisions here. Personal income revised down last month, 0.3% versus 0.4. Personal spending revised down negative 0.1% versus 0.1% prior. You've got real personal spending also revised down to negative 0.2% from prior. So uh, all in all, this is roughly a match across the board for PC with the exception of the month over month number. The month-over-month -month number coming in, uh, again, 0.1% hotter than expected. Uh, but 0.1% is still the equivalent of 1.2% inflation. Pretty darn nominal. Uh, in terms of uh, the market's reaction right now, it's relatively muted. A little bit of up, a little bit of down. Uh, so relatively muted reaction so far. We'll see if we can get a little bit more data here. Yeah, nope, that's about it. Let's take a listen here to what they're saying about it. Inflation fight. Personal incomes up two tenths of a percent on the month, and personal spending down two tenths. Uh, those both match estimates, so uh, bravo to the. Uh economists who did the forecasting. The incomes number uh, down from a revised three-tenths last month's spending is uh, down from a revised negative one-tenth. Interesting note here, guys, that, um, and this didn't show up as much in GDP because that comes out as a quarterly number. October personal consumption was up, but uh, November and December down. So the sequential move is to a slowing mm -hmm. consumer at well, this point. I, I want you to go to the basics here. I'm always looking as an amateur year-over-year -year PCE deflator, and as you mentioned, 5.5 down to 5. But you've been lecturing me in the last 90 days, month-over-month -month matters. Into this yeah. new year, is month-over-month -month more important to you and the Fed than year-over-year? -year? Well, personally, I don't care. But to the Fed, no, uh, seriously, to the Fed, it matters because what they're trying to do is eliminate the base effects from last year, and they want to see what the sequential progress is. If you were going to do a comparison to last year, you might want to do something compared to, say, March of last year when they started raising interest rates. So the year over year is what gets the headlines and what uh, kind of the consumer looks at, but the Fed's looking at the sequential change because they want to make sure that... Uh, uh, they're getting uh, a regular decline yeah. in the numbers. Uh, let me just give you this uh, savings rate. It went up to 3.4% from 2.9%. So that was a concern out there that uh, people were spending down all of their leftover stimmy money. And now it looks like uh, they kept some <coughs> aside in uh, the uh, month of December. Uh, wages and salaries, though, uh, they sort of uh, decelerate three tenths. Uh, November was five tenths. Now uh, uh, 
uh, revised down to three-tenths. So a little bit of slowing on the wage and salary front, which is also going to be good news for the Fed. Well, basically, yep. this is not really uh, that newsy for the markets. They're basically stasis across the board as people priced in most of this. This was pretty much bang in line with expectations. The one area, Mike, that I want to focus in on, though, real mm. personal spending. When you when you strip away the inflationary impulse behind it, it dropped more than expected. Are we seeing a consumer that is being warned duly by what's going on and pulling back ahead of the storm? Well, I think that you're seeing basically that. Now, is it because they accelerated all their spending into October uh, and September was also large <clears throat> as well because they felt they needed to get their Christmas shopping out of the way early? Or is it because people are really mm. pulling back? This is a, something of a seasonal thing. The last year we saw basically right. the same dynamic. So are we uh, seeing a change in consumer spending patterns? Uh, but you're right, real personal spending lower. Now you're taking inflation out of that. Uh, real personal spending up three-tenths compared to a two-tenths decline last month. So all right. So one of the notes in the actual report shows us here at the bottom that uh, within goods, the decrease in PCE was widespread. So this is good. Within goods, decreases were widespread. We, we want to hear that, right? We want widespread decreases in, in prices led by gasoline as well as motor vehicles and parts. Thanks, Tesla. Within services. The largest contributors to the increase were spending for housing, transportation, mainly air transportation, and healthcare. Now, again, we expect housing to plummet. As long as it does, we should be okay. Uh, put that in the wrong spot. There we go. Uh, air transportation. Now, this is fascinating because we do continue to see pain in air transportation. And this actually brings me to... Uh, a, a report on Southwest, which gives us some more insight into some of the actual inflationary impulses that, that we're still seeing uh, at the airlines. And, and we've been studying the airlines here, not as a potential investment, but more as sort of an indicator of what inflation could be doing going forward. Uh, Southwest has new 737 maxes, which fortunately are more fuel efficient. Uh, however, there's the expectation that China's reopening could end up pressuring ticket prices. Uh, and the assumption right now is that if fuel prices stay stable, we're still going to be putting more pressure on flying. And given that the entire industry is still smaller than what it was in 2019, in other words, it's smaller today than what it was in 2019, pilot costs are expected to continue to go up. Salaries in the uh, airline industries are expected to continue to rise. For pilots, uh, pilot salaries could rise as much as 18% as soon as early this year, potentially another 5% by the end of the year, according to research by Bloomberg. Fares are expected to need to rise from today, 19 to 27%, just to get to 2019 levels of profitability. That's insane. Think about that. Prices still have to go up 19 to 20% on airfares just to get to 2019 profitability. Now, that doesn't mean prices are actually going to rise 19 to 27% because they might not have the power to do that. Consider, for example, what United Airlines said in their earnings call. They said that if our competitors start cutting prices, we are prepared to cut prices as well because we think we're more efficient. That does not mean you're going to get back to 2019 profitability. And guess what you have more of today than ever before? Debt. 
In my opinion, that makes the airline industry a terrible investment, but it certainly continues to increase the inflationary dynamic and concern that we have. And if you couple with that Chinese reopening, there's, there's concern that we're going to continue to see inflation, at least in the air transportation sector, which apparently was one of the leaders in uh, inflation for PCE in the report that just came out this morning. Now, there is a suggestion that uh, by a lot of institutions and hedge funds, and I think it's nonsense, but a lot of institutions and hedge funds are calling for $100 oil upon the uh, Chinese reopening. Uh, I personally don't see it, but it's possible. Brent's sitting at 88.42 right now. It's been slowly sneaking up. But one of the things that I think is quite interesting is what you saw when China shut down and Russia invaded Ukraine is you saw Russian oil, instead of going as much to China because of the COVID pandemic and their lockdowns, their three years of lockdowns, uh, and, and, and also a uh, removal of Russian oil from uh, other parts of the world, like the United States or otherwise, what you actually interestingly saw was you saw a substantial amount of Russian oil go, guess what? to India. A lot of Russian oil, while it's still flowing to China, went straight to India this year. And you could see that on this particular chart here. While this orange level is expected to rise uh, because this is all representative of a Chinese lockdown era, what you actually have is right after the invasion, the other parts of the world, such as Europe and the United States, saw the uh, purchases of Russian oil almost disappear to nothing. Whereas you have India's purchases of Russian oil skyrocket and basically more than absorb. More, you could see that more than absorb over here. More than absorb avail available oil from Russia. Now what I think is remarkable about that is guess what kind of companies are starting to all of a sudden dump a lot of money into investing in India? Well, you happen to have one of the largest companies in the world, which happens to be an American company, and it happens to be a company that probably 50% of you are watching me on right now. It's Apple, folks. Apple. Apple wants to see 25% of their manufacturing in India in the future. That, they expect to have 25% of their products manufactured in India. And guess who's taken all, well, maybe not all, but a ton literally millions uh, of barrels of oil, uh, hundreds of millions, quite frankly, when you add it all up. Who's taking it all? India. So it's kind of interesting. As Europe and the United States on one hand say, oh, we're going to make sure Russia pays and we're going to stop buying their oil and we're going to put price caps on. Fine. Put price caps on. That creates shortages of oil and increases the cost of oil for us in America. But what does it also do? It creates an arbitrage opportunity where uh, countries like India can buy the oil cheaper. And so now you actually have potentially cheaper domestic production in India. And what companies are taking advantage of it? Oh, American companies that are swooping in to take advantage of a cheaper cost of production. It's pretty weird when, when you think about geopolitics and how on one hand you, uh, you, you have to politically show, oh, we're going to punish Russia. But on the other hand, American companies are hopping in to benefit from exactly that. Uh, it's expected that uh, India could be getting somewhere between a $25 to $40 arbitrage on the cost of oil. Uh, cheap oil, kind of fascinating. Now, this, uh, uh, by the way, is also 
uh, expected to uh, impact the uh, uh, or be impacted by uh, uh, Chinese reopening because as India has started taking so much of uh, Russian oil, if China does reopen as strongly as expected, uh, now all of a sudden that Russian oil uh, might not be eaten up by uh, Chinese reopening, creating again shortages. Uh, because uh, now what was otherwise displaced by other countries is getting eaten up by India. So an interesting potential thesis that, yes, maybe it is possible uh, oil could still take up to that $100 range. Personally, again, I don't think so. I'm not a big believer that uh, oil prices are going to run. I think we'll, we'll end up relatively stable. And if anything, we might trend down. But that is a big trade that's being done right now or uh, being made right now. Do keep in mind as well that China itself is expecting uh, some substantial uh, investments, uh, not only into the real estate sector, but also the auto sector. And it's worth considering that for a moment. Right now, and, and this all of this, by the way, contributes to the Chinese reinflationary boom. The first number that you have to remember is that uh, China's discretionary savings is sitting at about $700 billion. That's about one uh, third the size of what uh, the American discretionary savings wa uh, were. And when you look at that on a per person basis, it's even more wild, given that uh, India has about uh, uh, 1.4 billion individuals. You're really only looking at about $500 of savings, whereas Americans had about 12 times that, or about $6,000 of savings contributing to that inflationary nightmare. So the per person increase, uh, the per capita increase in, in uh, sort of available cash is not that high in China relative to what we saw during the U.S. boom, if you will. Uh, but in aggregates, hey, $700 billion of a potential uh, uh, built-up savings rate uh, or amount is, is, is still quite a bit. And it still has that potential for driving some form of inflation, especially since China is now providing guarantees to their developers to help them finally get the real estate industry moving back again. China makes a lot, or Chinese cities and towns make a lot of their money from property auctions. So they're very incentivized to keep the real estate market going. We've seen a uh, an 18% decline in sales from, from January to November of 2022. However, that's only down to uh, down at about a 6% decline if you go year over year, January to January. And that's because in December and January, you've seen a lot more support for the real estate market in China, which could also be inflationary again. It's easier for real estate companies to uh, issue bonds now because some of the uh, debt is being guaranteed or the performance of developers is being guaranteed, making Chinese uh, bond debt for real estate companies less risky. That potentially means, okay, great, less of a crazy housing crash, but then it also potentially means, uh-oh, are we going to go back to that speculative real estate bubble that we had in China where Chinese developers are building ghost cities? Literally cities with high rises and no one living there because the thought of, oh, well, if we build it, they will come wasn't actually true. So you had a lot of developers building properties that didn't end up actually being sold or rented to anyone. So there is that risk of creating another bubble environment. And if you create another real estate bubble in China, yeah, you're going to have some more real estate uh, or uh, induced inflation especially as more real estate uh, development increases the cost of concrete, it increases the cost of iron, increases the cost of copper, uh, which as commodity prices go up, what happens? We have 
uh, supply-induced inflation, which eventually ends up showing in consumer price numbers. So there, there is a claim to the idea uh, that China is going to be inflationary. Again, I think because of my rubber band scrunchie analogy that supply chains have become so much more resilient, we probably won't have as much inflation as individuals are expecting. But China doesn't want to be held back. And so they are doing everything in their power, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, to make sure they continue to invest, such as the likelihood that China is potentially going to become the world's number two exporter of vehicles, surpassing both South Korea and the United States, uh, and, and certainly Japan as well. These are all uh, pretty substantial exporters of vehicles. And uh, you've got companies like Polestar being manufactured by Volvo uh, and getting investments from the Chinese parent company, Geely, uh, really hoping to take advantage of uh, the Chinese export market. Though uh, cars exported by China are a lot less expensive than cars produced by companies like Polestar or even Tesla. China is really known for its cheap cars. It usually exports cars about 30% cheaper than their Japanese counterparts. Cars tend to be exported at an average price of just $13,700. Uh, China right now exports about 2.5 million passenger vehicles. But get this, they expect that to grow to 8 million vehicles by 2030. That is 3.2 times the export vehicle market for China by 2030. Now, personally, I actually think that is a big positive for a company like Tesla. You want the wins at your back in China. You don't want China saying, oh, Tesla's American, let's put a lid on them. China wants to do whatever they can to ensure they can get as many vehicles out of China as possible. They are encouraging exports, building more railways, expanding ports as much as possible, and a strengthening U.S. dollar, uh, or sorry, a weakening U.S. dollar could actually be good for companies that, like American companies like Tesla, that export uh, uh, vehicles uh, from China to uh, other areas. But also, keep in mind, only about 45% of revenue for, for Tesla comes from the United States. So a weakening dollar uh, is going to increase the value of that 55% international revenue, which is great. Uh, okay, so this is interesting, right? So when it comes to inflationary impulses, you have uh, oil concerns. You do have the real estate concern of China. You've got this blowing up expanding car market in China. You've got inflationary concerns from the airlines. But you've also got inflationary concerns from staples. I hate to say it. But the other day, I reported that Procter & Gamble was showing us some pretty concerning uh, inflationary trends. Uh, and that, that kind of slaps us in the face of thinking that, oh yeah, we're definitely going to see deflation, right? Uh, I mean, take a look at this. This is Procter & Gamble. This was one of the most critical portions of the report. On the commodity side, we've seen our, some of our commodities annualized, as you say, shown some decreases. That's great. But... The majority of our commodity basket still sees week over week and month over month increases. So they're still seeing pain uh, from inflationary pressures at Procter & Gamble. And I was hoping to get a different story from Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson, obviously another staples provider. But unfortunately, what we got at Johnson & Johnson was not that. We actually got more warnings about inflation. In fact, Johnson & Johnson told us that in consumer health, they expect to continue to utilize strategic price increases across the portfolio to reduce inflationary demands. 
you have uh, comments uh, that uh, inflationary pressures are affecting almost all of their cost of goods sold, that their operating margin is expected to be flat driven by inflationary pressures. Again, that they're expecting to increase prices in certain areas. They do expect that inflation will be better in the second half of the year, but not in the first half of the year, which echoes what we've seen some of uh, the inflationary complaints at Procter & Gamble. Again, they don't expect deflationary relief until the second half. And if anything, they're expecting a worse inflationary impact in the first half. So you, you, you have some inflationary concerns. It's, it's not like, I, I don't want to be the person that's saying you, to you, you're only expecting to see deflation. No, there is still uh, a large inflationary catalyst. And it's sitting in the following areas. It's sitting in airfares. It's sitting in healthcare, which is literally what the PCE report this morning reiterated. The PCE report that just came out 20 minutes ago from the time of this recording. Within services the largest contributors to the increases were spending for housing, transportation, mainly air transport, and healthcare. So Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson are telling us, yep, still seeing that inflationary impulse at least for the first half of the year. So you do have some red flags for inflation. You've got the China concern, the oil concern, the China, uh, China concern being broken into two parts, autos and uh, sort of their expansionary investments uh, leading to not necessarily higher average selling prices for cars, but a higher demand for commodities. And you got a housing sector that potentially could boom again in China, leading to, again, more pressure on commodities. And you have, again, airlines complaining about increases uh, in inflationary pressures from pilot pay to just regular wage pay in, uh, in, in uh, uh, the um, job sector for airfares. Uh, but then also... You have Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble telling us staples are still seeing inflationary pressures and those are likely to continue for at least the next six months. So everything is not great. Yes, we have a lot of disinflationary impulses. Uh, the average price of vehicles coming down substantially. Chip sector, prices coming down substantially. Uh, goods generally deflating across the board. Uh, commodities have come down about 20% year over year. But uh, it's it's reports like this that unfortunately are going to send a signal to the United States that uh, and the Federal Reserve that maybe, just maybe, we've got to keep some pressure uh, on markets because there are still what I call inflationary embers. And that's a problem. Inflationary embers mean higher rates for longer. Higher rates for longer potentially mean more pain in the stock market for longer. However, and fortunately, following the PCE report that just came in about 20 minutes ago, the stock market has slowly started to trend higher. Maybe, just maybe, the stock market is willing to look past the next six months of inflationary impulses that may still exist and the embers. Because remember, even Procter & Gamble and uh, uh, Johnson & Johnson told us we just basically have to get through the next six months of inflationary impulses. That's good. And the Fed is also aware that it takes time for higher interest rates to really affect every part of the market. Uh, so potentially, the light is at the end of the tunnel, even for the staples and commodities. That would be great. But obviously, we'll be paying attention to China in the meantime. So uh, I think this is, uh, I think a way to sort of conclude there is, is 
I, I don't believe that the videos that I make uh, by any means are flippant, uh, although some people allege that because I think all they do is read the titles. Uh, I, I think that the Fed has fought a, a really hard fight of inflation, this massive fire, and there are still hotspots that we want to pay attention to. We want to make sure those don't, don't pop up again. But I still am of the mindset, and, and I'm saying this to be very, very clear, and no, it's not to remind you about the 30, uh, or the, the coupon code that expires on the 30th for the programs on building your wealth. Best price guaranteed for the next three months. It's to say that we are in an environment where unless we get a massive black swan and catalyst to the downside, we could see a slow Nike style, Nike swoosh style recovery of the stock market as markets in the Fed slowly look past the inflation that's still popping up in the embers as those cool off. And there's, as long as there's no black swan event that leads to some mass capitulation event in the stock market, we might not hit new lows again. The bottom may be behind us. But again, we'll be paying attention to these inflationary impulses. They are rare. And I want to be clear about that. They're rare. In fact, we have more talks about rate cuts and pauses than anything else. Look at the Bank of Korea. First major central bank to start raising rates in mid-2021 versus the U.S., who raised rates about nine months later, liftoff in March of 2022. They hinted at potentially pausing as soon as February, with their last 25 basis point hike potentially having been January 13th. The Bank of Canada, guess what? Also expects inflation to fall to 3% by the middle of this year. They're predicting no recession, a mild contraction at worst, aka a soft potential landing. And Canada ultimately expects to potentially pause rates, holding them at 4.5% as soon as the next meeting. In terms of the United States, we're expecting a pause with about uh, a 14% uh, chance in March and by May, sitting at a 58% chance of a pause by May for the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve might actually follow the Bank of Canada and Bank of Korea in, hike, in, in, in pausing, essentially. We shall see. We shall see. All right. Let's take a listen over to Bloomberg for a moment. At home, they keep a calendar check on every 90 days. I start screaming about lazy-ass kids who go... How can we stay informed and all that? And I just, I go nuts. I say, it takes work. Well, you have to work at it. I and actually was having good. a conversation with someone who is in my home about the uh, potential influence that they get from the media that they read on TikTok or Instagram. Uh. And they told me, you know what? It's not a big deal. I can discern what's, you know, manipulative or what's potentially uh, influencing me in one way or another. Really? I mean, honestly, this is some of the questions that, that yeah. need to really be discussed. we got to get ready for next week, a Fed meeting and earnings. And as you mentioned earlier, important earnings it's... about the pulse of what America does best, which is technology. Big tech parade. Ooh. we got Amazon, Apple and Google or uh, Alphabet, as some would call it, on Thursday. We continue forward on this Friday, and very importantly, in 64 minutes, key economic data. Stay with us on radio, on television. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Auto finance is trust. Pop over. Surprised by the way the market's taking them? I'm not necessarily surprised, Andrew. Uh, at the end of the day, the market has been hoping, and, and Joe referenced this earlier, uh, we see this in the Fed, fund, Fed Fund's futures rates, we see this in the 10-year and the 2-year, 
the market has been anticipating some type of pivot. The market has been anticipating some type of relaxation or, or, or at least pause by the Fed. And we're just not there yet. Uh, you know, no, what will rightfully grab headlines is that on a year-over-year basis, the number came down. But probably more importantly, when you look over a month-over-month basis, uh, it's, like, it's likely to have gone up about uh, 20 basis points. And so as long as that number is still increasing, we can look for comfort in saying that the year-over-year went down, but you know, that probably ignores the base effect and that we're lapping some pretty difficult compares as we go forward. So what are you doing about it? And what do you think uh, viewers should be doing about it? I, I think you'll be shocked, Andrew. Uh, I actually looked to be more bullish when I uh, looked, did my year-end lookout and I looked across 2023 and, and, and tried to write down my expectations. I actually started to get very bullish about the fourth quarter in particular. I think we lapped some very easy compares, particularly with some of the technology companies where ad spending fell off, et cetera. I felt that analyst estimates, which are still a problem, they're still too high, Andrew. I thought that when we reach kind of mid-yearish, that we will have uh, gotten the expectations in line with what we're likely to see. And I th thought that we'd be past the Fed and looking to the Fed for all of our market movements. I'm now less optimistic about those scenarios. One of them we also touched upon earlier, that we are now 425 basis points into a rate hike cycle, and yet we still have unemployment at 3.5%. Remember, the Fed is targeting 4.5%, if not more, to get that wage inflation under control, which is the primary driver of services inflation. And if there's going to be a duration between when the Fed acts and when we actually right. see that play out, we get the desired results in the market, that means we're going to be with, this is going to be with us for, for a while longer than we expect it. But I think part of the question is, I think we know what the Fed's going to do in the, in the near term. The real question to me is what you think the Fed's going to do next fall. And I know that's sort of a, maybe, maybe we're looking too far up, but that's, but that's basically what people are betting on, one way or the other at this point. No, I don't think it is looking too far, Andrew. And, and I think that that's why you hear a lot of folks now subscribing to hire for longer. Their hire is probably less than my hire. You know, remember I'm on record as saying I think the terminal rate will likely end up being somewhere around 6%. But I think we'll be in that range for a couple of years. Say and if that that's again. The case, what do you think the terminal rate? What did you? Six percent. Take that. I think back. We're, gonna, we're eventually going to see. <laughs> oh no! I don't yeah. want it to be that. How can so, no. Don't get me wrong. Oh. Okay, we're out of time. Well, uh, what a let, way me, to let me end. ask you this. All right, so Mr. Six Percent over here. Okay, we've got. Let's answer this. Hi, Kevin. Can you elaborate on your housing crash stance? Distressed debt is less than 1% and most loans are sub 4% rates. Appreciate all you do. This is correct. So a lot of folks are calling for a real estate crash that could be worse than what we've seen and the depths of the Great Recession. That's bullcrap. This crash, I in no way, none of the research indicates to being anywhere near as bad as what we have seen in the Great Recession. Now, let's be real. There is going to be a lot of fear that comes to the real estate market in the next six months. Now, I want you to know this. We are, uh, when it comes to getting data, we are two months lagged thanks to the, the way the Case-Shiller Index works for real estate. I could tell you today data for January already. I could look at all the numbers, the sales data for today in January. And what does the Case Shiller do? They spend time looking at November. 
So this leads a lot of people to believe that real estate prices are actually still increasing because they hear the Case-Shiller Index and they hear that, oh, real estate prices November year over year are actually up maybe four or 5%. But what's actually happened is that real estate prices have started to come down. And the question now is how much further will they come down? Do we expect a foreclosure crisis like we had in 2008? Absolutely not. And it's true. It's not only because interest rates are uh, substantially lower or had been substantially lower uh, to where a lot of individuals who actually hold uh, real estate are, are not in debt distress. In fact, they're much better off just renting out their properties uh, than, than selling them. There's no necessary, uh, there's no, nothing necessitating them dumping their real estate because unlike in the 2008 financial crisis, we don't have people who signed up for a negative interest rate to be able to qualify for the loan. And then we're told that don't worry when your rate readjusts to a 7% interest rate, you could just refinance it. Oh, but wait, prices were falling, so you can't refinance anymore, but you can't make a 7% payment because you were never qualified to pay that. And what happens? You get foreclosed on. We now have ability to be re repay rules where the entire set of payments that you make, you have to qualify for, no matter if you started with a lower interest rate or you end up with a higher interest rate. So for example, if you have an adjustable rate mortgage, you have to show that you can actually qualify when and if that rate adjusts up you have to qualify for all of it. That's really important. That alone is a huge difference. You also don't have ninja loans, which were no income, no job, no asset loans, where basically dead people were able to get loans. You have a pretty stringent lending environment where the average credit score of a home buyer uh, before this started a recent tickdown, although it's probably still in about this range, uh, the average credit score of a buyer over the last 10 years has been in the range of 740 to 780. Average credit score of a home buyer back in the financial crisis was closer to 650, substantially weaker. Now, if we look at the fear that's coming though, and this is the big fear that folks are going to capitalize on substantially over the next few months, it has to do with median sales prices changing. Take a look at this. What you wanna do here is you wanna look at the blue line. And I want you to pretend that this blue line stays stable. That is home prices don't actually fall anymore. That let's just say home prices stay stable at a national median sales price of $350,000. Well, if you draw this line stable going over to the right, what happens right now? Well, it actually shows that it's still above the red line. So it shows that home prices are still up year over year, right? But what happens when that blue line is right here under the big black line? And all of a sudden in February, we see that home prices were $353,000 last year. And today they're $350,000. Well, what are you gonna see? Oh my gosh, real estate prices are down 1% year over year. You're not going to hear the Case-Shiller Index tell you that home prices are down 1% year over year until April. What's going to happen then when you go to April of 2023, when you're in April and you get that first negative 1%, what are actually home prices down year over year? Well, if they're still at 350 and the median home price then was 374, well, then you're going to look and you're going to see that home prices are actually down about six and a half percent year over year in April, but the Case-Shiller won't tell you that until June. And so now people are gonna think, oh my gosh, the housing market's getting worse and worse and worse. Panic, panic, panic. That's when the real pain comes, in my opinion. And unless interest rates fall dramatically, the 10-year treasury goes down to say 2.5 to 2.75%, you're not going to see a floor put under the real estate market. Instead, you'll get a lot more fear because now you actually have year over year price declines. And when you get to the worst part, 
is when you actually see home prices year over year at the end of May go to a high of 389000 And if they're just stable at three fifty, assuming no further declines, if they decline more, it'll be worse. But assuming no further declines, you're looking at about an 11% decline in prices year over year. That'll get reported not in June or May when it actually came out, but probably in July or August. So you've got another eight months of bad news actually baked in to the mainstream media narrative for real estate coming ahead of you, not behind you. So the bad news technically is still coming. Now, of course, people like me are going to continue to report what's actually happening with that 350 number today. We could do this by looking at MLS data to get exactly what our most recent data is, uh, given that the Redfin Data Center is about one week delayed. But we could also go into individual uh, regions, either through the multiple listing service uh, with realtors, or you can play around on the Redfin Data Center. And you could actually see that in the case of Austin, you had another decline last week in median home prices. You're down to 450 in median home prices. That compares to a peak of 572. 450 divided by 572, that is a 21.5% drop is what you're going to get reported eventually. It has already occurred from peak to now, but the lag of that release is going to be quite interesting. Now, you do have people like the CEO of Redfin trying to mislead you into saying that, oh, well, the housing market is getting better. The first violation of uh, the CEO of Redfin, in my opinion, is totally forgetting what happened in January of last year. Let me make that clear. Here, he tweets and says, in the second week of November, the number of people going on a home for a tour uh, with Redfin agents was down 33% year over year. But by the third week of January, that number was only 19%, down 19%, which is still bad, but it's better. And they did the same analysis for people making offers. I reply tweeted to this and I said, dude, January of 2022, everybody stayed inside because they were afraid of Omicron. I know that sounds wild, but in the last three weeks of January, you had very few people going out to restaurants, movie theaters, real estate. People didn't want to get AMI or they were sick at home with AMI. So I think that's a bad comparison and you shouldn't make that kind of comparison. And again, I am not a real estate like mega bear who's saying we're going to have a worse than 2008 crisis, but things are probably going to get worse before they get better unless that 10-year treasury yield plummets fast. This is what you want to pay attention to. The 10-year treasury yield, yes, it's come down off of the four and a quarter percent where it was in September and October. Yes, it is lower. Great. But if it shelves over here at three and a half percent, it is still remarkably higher than the 1.5% we had when interest rates were like two and a half percent for real estate and mortgages. Mortgage rates are still sitting at six to six and a half percent. Your buyer purchasing power is still down 40%. And when you factor in the fear that's coming, you're probably going to have more pain the not, but that doesn't mean 2008 level pain. It just still means more pain. Also consider this institutional redemptions for real estate investment trusts are still in backlog. That means companies like KKR or BlackRock are still having to potentially liquidate real estate to give their investors the money they say they will give them. This same thing is happening in Australia right now. Dexas announced the sale of six properties for 
483 million Australian dollars in December, signaling the willingness to dump assets just to provide the redemptions they promise to their clients, to their customers. In America, we have KKR, Blackstone, and Starwood. All of them are potentially facing liquidations due to withdrawal requests. So think about what you do have as a setup for 2023. You have year-over-year -year FUD in terms of price decline news that comes out. You have institutional liquidations, not necessarily individual homeowners dumping who've locked in 30-year fixed-rate loans, but institutions who have to dump when they get redemption requests. They don't have the luxury of saying, but, 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 but guys, we locked in 2.5%. People are like, give me my damn money. Right? That's the way institutional investments work. So you probably have more institutional liquidation along with a massive backlog of new construction. The highest backlog of new construction that we've seen since 2006. So yeah, there is bad news. It, again, I don't think it's as bad as 2008, but it's certainly not good. And here's another offense that really just pisses me off. I think the CEO of Redfin is just pissed off that their stock is down. Redfin stock, year to date, uh, positive 41%. Sounds really good, right? Sounds great. One year, down 76%. If you go even further and you go back to the peak, it's even scarier. This thing ran up to 96 bucks, which means peak to trough, this sucker's down 93%. Yikes. I actually bought Redfin at $9 in the pandemic. Uh, and I sold most of my Redfin about 40 bucks because we saw this real estate crash coming from a mile away. And there is no way like 30 to 50% of agents are not going to leave the industry. That's bad. When volumes, trend, uh, transactions go down, you lose money at Redfin. You lose money at Zillow. You lose money at eXpi. So not investments I want to be exposed to. But this right here just really grinds my gears. The CEO of Redfin, says bidding wars are still the exception but not the rule and says this is a property in Sarasota, Florida which just got 23 offers. And uh, me, having previously been an eBay seller, I know I can get a lot of offers for things if I just listed a, a book and then the market sets the price, right? And then I could tell everybody how I got 100 offers on my property or my product or whatever and it makes it seem popular. But I actually tweet replied the CEO and... I used Zillow to help me, and I wrote, Detail helps. A $299,000 listing is what the CEO is talking about here, which was listed in a neighborhood where other properties are listed for $400,000 to $525,000 as, as list prices. So in other words, you underlisted a property potentially by over $100,000, and it got 23 offers? A duh... You could have the market fall another 20% and still be up money on that deal if you get it for the right price. So another misleading thing. So we got the misleading information about Omicron. We have the misleading information uh, about the uh, multiple offers property. Uh, here, when we talk about Seattle, seeing potentially 12 offers on a $1.4 million listing with 155K over asking for the home, what do we have? No link to the listing. So I can't even look up and see what's going on over here. Let me tell you about Seattle because I just visited Seattle to look at the real estate market. You know what I learned? The agent's talking to me about how they're not getting inbound referrals anymore because people are leaving. 
Amazon vacating a 28-story office building, relocating 2,300 employees from the office out of Seattle. They're pausing development of their campus in Bellevue, Washington. Why do I have this sort of data? It's because I'm running a real estate startup. We're starting a real estate startup. It's a startup after all called Househack. Learn more about Househack. Go to househack.com. We'll be doing a reggae release uh, probably in about uh, two months. But anyway, Meta subleasing two of its Seattle offices because it's laid off so much staff they can't pay the rent without subleasing the empty space. Microsoft is letting three of its leases expire. That's 1.7 million square feet of offices and new offices that they were planning, they have canceled. The downtown Seattle office, uh, the downtown Seattle association, that is, uh, says that half of Seattle's core space is office space and new leases are down 33% compared to before the pandemic. This is, makes sense because you've got massive layoffs coming to areas like this. 6% layoff at Spotify. Tesla's laid off a ton of white-collar workers. Google's laid off 12,000 workers. Uh, you've got Wayfair laying off 1,750 workers. Microsoft, 10,000 workers. Meta, 11,000 workers. Snap, 20% gone. 13% at Lyft gone. Twitter, more than half gone. Salesforce, 10% gone. Coinbase, 20% gone. Redfin, multiple rounds of layoffs. Open door, multiple rounds of layoffs. I think you've got two, like, 20% layoffs at open door. The amount of layoffs that are happening in tech are insane. So if you're going to be the CEO of Redfin and you're going to tell me that a listing in Seattle got 12 offers, but you're not going to give me the listing link after your last listing link was basically fraudulent. It's fraudulent, in my opinion, to say that a listing got 23 offers and not tell the world that it was potentially underlisted by as much as $150,000 or as much as $225,000. That's misleading. I mean, that is just pure deception. I, I don't know if he's just trying to pump the stock or what, but I, you know, I, I used to hold Glenn Kelman in, in esteem, but this kind of stuff pisses me off. It makes me think you don't know what you're doing. You're the CEO of Redfin. You're not actually providing context. And instead, what are you doing is you're providing quotes about how Redfin agents are saying, oh, things seem to be getting better. We used to say, take your time, but now we're not saying that anymore. Now we're saying the bottom is in. Let's go buy. I have five people looking to get pre-approved, says one lender. Well, how do we know your lender, A, isn't just a slowbie, and B, oh my gosh, imagine that. In January, people want to get pre-approved. Duh, when do most buyers buy? Most buyers buy in March. Most sellers sell in July. Of course, more people are going to get pre-approved. That's just the nature of, of, of what happens in the cyclicality of real estate. <sighs> Or let's get some more quotes instead of facts. On some listings, I'm starting to see offer deadlines again. It, it just bothers me that you have a CEO that rather than providing data, uh, like their own Redfin data center will provide, rather than looking at that sort of data, we're using anecdotes to talk about the real estate market. It's just ridiculous. So again, do I expect the real estate market to crash like 2008? No. But you look at the home builders and they're struggling. Contracts at DR Horton down 38%. They uh, they had contracts come in as they just reported earnings at uh, at just 13,382 versus the 14,528 that were expected. 
massive moderation in demand for housing. The same thing is happening at uh, KB Homes and a lot of the other builders. KB Homes down like 68% in contract signings. Or sorry, their cancellations are up to 68%, which is way above the usual like 12% cancel rate you see on new construction. It's insane. So yes, I do expect there's pain coming to real estate. Uh, again, do I expect it to be as bad as uh, 2008? No. But is there pain coming? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, what I do think is interesting, though, is you do have entertaining uh, commentary on Redfin from uh, a lot of clueless people on real estate. Or Redfin. <laughs> Reddit, I mean. Uh, and uh, some of them were actually entertaining to, to look at. And, oh, wow. One of them has been removed by the moderators. Uh, anyway, there was uh, this post about, pretty sure wife hates the house we just moved into. And when I was reading the post, this person's talking about how they bought a home on septic and on a busy road. And I'm like, first of all, you're an idiot. You should have taken the zero to millionaire real estate investing course, which tells you not to buy a yeah, but. A yeah, but is a property where like, look, I bought this cool house. Yeah, but it's on a busy street. Yeah, but it's abnormal in your area to be on septic. It's stupid. You're selling an abnormal product. And even if you want to go rent it out, you're going to have less desirable tenants who find it okay to live on a busy road and more likely to move and GTFO. If your wife moved into a house and hates it, what do you think the wives of tenants are going to think or the tenants themselves, the whatever? What do you think they're going to think when they move in? They're going to hate it too. Don't buy abnormal real estate. Don't be a dummy. A dummy in real estate is somebody who buys a yabot. A yabot is any property that's next to an auto repair shop, a graveyard, on a busy road, or worse, all three, which I have seen before, next to a graveyard, auto repair shop, and busy road. That's stupid. Properties under high tension power lines, not normal power lines, that's normal, but high tension power lines. Stupid. You'll glow in the dark and die. There are some properties you just don't buy. Now, I don't know what it is with, with Reddit removing a lot of uh, the, the, the posts that I'm trying to talk about here, but here's, you actually still have the post, uh, the picture here. This is a good one. They actually wrote, a rare time in which you wish you had an HOA. This is another thing that I actually teach in the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing Course. Coupon code expires January 30th. You want to buy properties in a homeowners association to rent them out. Most people... Most home buyers who come to me are like, why would I want to buy a home in an HOA? They're going to tell me what to do. Well, then don't do stupid shit. It's very simple. An HOA is almost like a property manager for the neighborhood. It makes sure people aren't dumb and leave rusty water heaters on their lawn, park on the grass, or put billboards in their front yards, or do stupid stuff like this picture here where you have a Joe Biden poster saying he has dementia, Jared Polis sucks, Joe Biden's an idiot, Biden remorse, Biden wasn't elected, he was de... What is that? Installed? Oh my God. Anyway, so like these are the stupid things that HOAs prevent because these are the things that ruin neighborhoods. These are the things that make a mess. And you might agree with those posters. But you don't want that in your neighborhood because it's going to lower property values in the neighborhood. It's going to lower desirability of people wanting to buy. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican, but if I am a real estate investor, I want your money. That's the way it works. I want you renting my properties and I want you demanding to rent in my neighborhood because it increases rents. 
it increases sales prices. I don't want dummies like this jerk with all his signs ruining property values in the neighborhood. I don't want that. And so I actually prefer to invest in neighborhoods that have small HOAs. Again, you've got a rules body. You've got a way to actually force compliance. It's a great thing. You don't want people leaving their Christmas decorations up all years, all year long because they're too damn lazy to take it down. That's how you ruin neighborhoods. I've gone through 2003 built neighborhoods. There's a 2003 built neighborhood in my city. And then there's a 2004 built neighborhood in my city. One of them has an HOA. The other one doesn't. The one that doesn't have the HOA has people growing squash in their front yards, RVs parked all over the place, and everyone painting their home a stupid, insane, different color from black to neon orange. I kid you not. I will take you through that neighborhood and show you it is stupid. You go through the HOA neighborhood that has an $18 a month HOA. No RVs, no cars parked on the grass, consistent paint schemes. Wow, higher property values. Imagine that. Imagine real estate actually being better when you have some homogeneity and conformity and you don't have stupid yeah buts. Wow, I don't know. Real estate's simple, but apparently a lot of people don't think so. <sighs> Freaking real estate. All right. I think it's time to go to the course member live stream. But I do want to do a quick check of the sticks. All right. So... Quick check of the sticks. Um, here we go. Quick check of the sticks shows American Express is up 6.8%. I'm going to go through that earnings call in our course member live stream. Uh, actually, the earnings call won't be out yet, but we'll go through the fundamentals of American Express in the course member live stream. Uh, Tesla is up about 1.29%. That's actually impressive after the 11% run it had yesterday. Intel's down about 9%. Uh, you've got you've actually got a nice little discount here on ASML, 2.81% as Intel is falling. That's okay. I, um, the chip sector is is not nowhere near out of the woods. Therefore, Nvidia is down about 1.5% as well, and Breyer down about 1.68% after Boeing. Not a lot of remarkable movement over here. <clears throat> you do have uh, what is this? Tattooed nut? Oh wait, sorry, tattooed chef up 3.7%. It's a buck forty. I was about to say uh, what what our boy Strongman usually says. Tattooed nut. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it though. Uh, anyway, uh, U.S. Treasury yields ten year up to 3.54 percent. Pre market mostly negative for the indices. Dow's roughly flat, down four basis points. S&P down 40 basis points. Nasdaq down 0.57. Well, that does it, folks. Thank you so much for being here. I'm gonna go check my blood pressure and go to a course member live stream. Thanks again. We'll see you in the next one. If you want to join me. Use that coupon code linked down below. Goodbye.